Good morning. Welcome to you who have uh, uh, gathered here with us today. Also a special welcome to the throngs and multitudes of you watching by home uh, around the world, the millions of viewers that are tuning in at this moment. We welcome all of you, uh, all of you in different countries as we're being translated into over 700 languages live. So all of you welcome, especially. This is a weird time, huh? Kind of unprecedented. There's not a lot of things that happen in our world that I, I feel like at this point, I'm like, yeah, I, I remember seeing something like this before. But now I'm going, I don't remember seeing something like this before. This coronavirus situation is a very uh, fluid situation, a very uncertain situation. Uh, I'll admit, I'll uh, stand up here and admit that I have had some bouts of anxiety and panic this week. Just wondering, what's happening? Where is this going? What's it going to mean for us? I know that we're taking this very seriously, and yet part of me has wondered sometimes, is this like the end of the world? The end of the world. People have always been fascinated by that topic, right? Think about how hugely popular right now in our culture zombie movies and television shows are. Everywhere you look, there are scenes of the apocalyptic end of the world. And we sit there with our eyes glued to the screens. The biggest movie last year that made $1 billion in five days was Avengers Endgame, about the apocalyptic end of the entire universe. Why are we so obsessed with the end of the world? What are we really so obsessed with? Maybe it's not that we're so focused on the end of the world, but about the world that is to come. What, what happens after the end of the world? Maybe that's what we really want to know. And believe it or not, the passage we're going to be in today, which I just want to, as a disclaimer, this passage was selected for this Sunday back in August of last year. Okay, so this is not a response to anything. It's just, it happens to be how it's been wired today. As we're continuing in the study of the book of Mark, I think there's some things that Jesus is going to say today that speak to us in our situation. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 13, if you want to turn there. I'm going to be using a translation out of our study guide on page 271 this morning. But we're going to be in Mark chapter 13. Now I want to remember, I want to remind you of where we are right now. We're walking through this season of Lent, and even though the first uh, 12 or 10 or chapters or so of Mark covered about a 30-year time span, these last few chapters shrink down and just cover one week's worth of time. We're walking through this last week of Jesus' life before his death and his resurrection, and everything is slowing down. And this section of Mark right here, chapters 11 through 13, they're very connected because they're all taking place in and around the temple. The temple, the place of worship for God's people, the place where they encountered God, the place where they came to get closer to God than anyone else. And to set the scene, and remember that, that millions of people have packed into this city for the celebration of Passover and to, to get to do this yearly pilgrimage to see the temple, many of them. A few weeks ago, Jonathan shared about the cleansing of the table. You remember throwing over the tables and, and all that kind of stuff. We call it the cleansing of the table, but I really like a quote that he used that framed that incident. He said, the temple is not, she said, the temple is being cleared out, not cleansed. It's not prepared so that it will be better. It's being symbolically and prophetically closed down. When Jesus was flipping tables over, he wasn't saying, come on, guys, we can do this thing better. He says, I am doing something new. 
Something new is happening. Something different is happening in terms of the presence of God. It's no longer the temple. And of course, his authority to declare this is questioned by the religious leaders. And this is the context we find ourselves in today. The temple is slowly sliding off the table. The camera is shifting focus and the temple is no longer the center of the picture. And this has people stirred up about the end of the world as they know it. So I want to dive into these words and let's see what they might say to us today. Mark chapter 13, verse 1, here's Jesus. As he was leaving the temple, one of his students says to him, Teacher, what wonderful stones, what a wonderful building. We're talking about the temple. The temple is huge. It's a 35-acre complex. A friend of mine was telling me this last Monday, we were having lunch, and he was telling me about a trip he took to Israel, and he got to actually stand next to the temple. And he told me something interesting about how big it is. He said uh, they even realized back then that it was so big that to stand next to it would get you kind of dizzy and disoriented because it had that sense, this illusion of it toppling over on you. And so what they did when they built it is they put each one of these massive stones a little bit, just a fraction of an inch out and out and out and out on each one. Kind of a reverse pyramid all sudden. Now it looks like a straight up and down wall, but it's so imperceptible. And they did that because it was so big, it would give people that impression. So they counteracted that. Scholars say the stones were the size of a room in a house today. Some of the stones weighed more than 100 tons. For comparison, the heaviest stones in the pyramids, two and a half tons. What wonderful stones, teacher. The temple was still incomplete in Jesus' day, but it had the reputation already of being the most beautiful building in the world. It was certainly the largest, the most imposing structure for miles and miles and miles in any direction. Teacher, what a wonderful building. Jesus says to them, do you see these great buildings? Not even one stone upon another will be left here that will not be torn down. Now get the scene. Jesus and the twelve are strolling through this complex, surrounded by all these people who have come to admire it. People have traveled for miles to come to this place to encounter God. This place that's been described all throughout the scriptures as this is a place to his presence. When I was in Ireland, I came across a Celtic phase, a phrase, and I'm going to try to say it, uh, Kilwatch. Y'all don't know if I said it right or not, so assume I just said that right. Really impressive. Kilwatch. Kilwatch means thin place. When you travel to a place like Ireland, they have this sense that there are places in their country where it's a kill watch. It's a thin place where, where the veil between the spiritual unseen world and the physical world is very thin. I felt like that at times standing on top of like Pike's Peak. Just these senses that there's these places maybe where God just feels a little closer. This temple was much more than their church building. It was their thin place. It was the center of their life, their faith. It was their national pride and identity. It was their religious pride and identity. It was a place where even if they were facing persecution or being beaten or being oppressed, throughout their, they had the temple. So when the disciples are looking at this temple, they're like, wow, it's it's just so impressive. It's just so huge, so beautiful. And Jesus says, it'll be thrown down. This is not an appropriate statement to make. This is like standing in the line at the TSA at the airport and going, wow, this airport's the bomb. 
There are dangerous times. There are things you don't say. And this is a dangerous thing to say. Many people would w- begin to wonder, who is this man? Is he planning some kind of terror attack? Is he gonna, he, he's talking about throwing the building down? What is he? And, of course, these words are going to haunt him. And they're part of this growing movement that will culminate in his death. Jesus is pronouncing the end of the temple, and to the people standing in that room, it probably sounded like the end of the world. But it wasn't, because this isn't about that. In reality, what Jesus is doing, he's putting into words the message he had acted out earlier in this week that we saw Jonathan talk about when he stopped the sacrificial system from functioning. So what is he talking about? The disciples wondered that also. And later they got a chance to ask him. Look at verse 3. And when he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Rock and James and John and Andrew began asking him privately, tell us, when will these things be? You just said the temple's being torn down. When? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be carried out? It's important to remember this conversation because many people have read this chapter, verse, uh, chapter 13 in Mark, and also the corresponding passages in Luke and in Matthew as mainly being about the end of the world. But this isn't about that. The main subject here remains the fate of the physical temple in Jerusalem. They're sitting here on this hill. They're looking at this, the massive complex. This is also about the fate of Jesus' followers in the time that's going to be leading up to this event. So Jesus begins to answer them. Beware that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will mislead many. But when you hear of battles and reports of battles, do not be disturbed. This must take place, but it is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These things are the beginning of birth pains. All these are the signs. They said, what are the signs? She said, here are the signs. But remember, it's the beginning of the end. It's not the end. The details of Jesus' words here found fulfillment in the 40 years or so after this conversation leading up to the temple being destroyed, as we know from history, in A.D. 70. In the years following these words of Jesus Christ, you had five major earthquakes in Crete, Rome, Phrygia, and Camponia. And other places. There were three great famines, Judea, Greece, and Rome. A.D. 65, five years before the destruction of the temple, was the worst year for famines and earthquakes in the history of the Roman Empire. A.D. 69, one year before the destruction of the temple, it was called the year of the four emperors because it was one of the most uh, confusing and upheaval times politically that the empire had known. And Jesus is telling them right here what's about to happen. When you get to the very last verse there, in verse 8, I think it begins to start help us unpack this, package, uh, this passage. He says, these things are the beginning of birth pains. When you read through the prophets of the Old Testament, they all spoke about labor pains as this metaphor for a, a, a birth of some kind of new world, a new kingdom, a place and a day where justice and peace and mercy and truth would flourish. And Jesus believes that his kingdom message, that his kingdom mission was the divinely appointed means of bringing this new world to birth. This is what he's saying. What I'm about to do, guys, in a few days, and what I've been talking about for the last three years, is birthing this new world. It's about to happen. His focus is the beginning 
the birth, as opposed to the end. This chapter is about the beginning, not about the end. This is what Jesus has been saying in the book of Mark. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. It's about to be born. It's the beginning of the world, not the end of it. Look at Jesus' next words. He's going to describe a persecution that's about to hit these guys that's going to be connected to the destruction of this temple. Verse 9. Guys, watch out for yourselves. They will hand you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You'll be made to stand before governors and kings for my sake as a witness to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they lead you away to hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you should say. But whatever is given to you at that time, say this. For you yourselves are not speaking but the Holy Spirit. These are not just general words spoken to people who are going to be preaching and teaching the gospel for the next 20 centuries. These are not words for you and me. These are about these 12 gathered disciples that are sitting right in front of Jesus who will soon find themselves on trial standing before Jewish councils. Later in verse 13, Jesus says this, But the one who endures to the end, this one, will be saved. Guys, it's going to get really hard. Don't lose hope. Endure. One of the arts that Jesus' followers have to learn after he ascends and leaves them is endurance. Because there's going to be the rise of false teachers, frightening rumors, natural disasters. They're going to cause them to panic and quit and run. And he says, resist. These things are only the beginning of the birth pains. The metaphor that Jesus is using here and the prophets have been using is really this thought that the world is in labor giving birth to the world that is to come. And these birth pains are where the purposes of God and the pains of our world are meeting and it's going to hurt. Some people look at this passage and they think, well, this is just saying the world's going to get worse and worse. I think Jesus is just saying, look, the world's not getting worse and in some ways it's getting better. But the world's always been screwed up. It will always be screwed up. But I have come near and I have brought the kingdom of God and it is being born now. And then he goes on in verses 14 through 23 to conclude, continue with a warning of what is to come. This is not a what it's going to be like when the world ends warning. It's a yes, it's bad, but remember, it's not the end of the world. He says, verse 14, but when you see the repugnance of devastation, that's kind of an odd phrase, right? It's kind of a mouthy, punchy phrase, the repugnance of devastation. You'll notice there's little quotes around it. We'll come back to that. When you see the repugnance of devastation standing where he must not, and then Mark seems to throw in a little aside, let the reader understand. Hey, people reading this, connect the dots. Those who are in Judea must flee to the hills. When this event happens, you must flee to the hills. The one on a housetop must not climb down or go inside to get anything from the house. There's no time. The one in the field must not turn back to get clothing. Oh, and the poor women who are pregnant, who are nursing in those days, pray it does not happen in winter. It's going to be a rough time to be running from the city when it's cold outside. So something is happening. Something's going down that's going to happen called the repugnance of devastation. Now, Jesus is borrowing a phrase from the Old Testament book of Daniel. He warns that whenever this repugnance of devastation starts, they need to get the heck out of Dodge. Flee to the hills. Don't go inside to get anything. Don't turn back to get clothing and pray it doesn't happen in winter. Now, this is what's odd. Up until this point, Jesus has been saying, guys, it's going to be hard, but endure. 
You won't know what to say, but the Holy Spirit will give it to you. But hang in there, hang in there, hang in there. And then he says, but when this happens, run. Get out. What is Jesus talking about? I believe that the repugnance of devastation he's talking about is the moment when a foreign army will take over the temple that they are looking at and will destroy it. And we know that this happened as a fact in A.D. 70. Josephus, famous historian, writes this. He says, we have terrible tales of the siege of Jerusalem, how people starved. They fought, for, they fought each other both for scraps of dirty food and for small-scale political gains. More Jews were killed by other Jews than the invading Romans. It was going to get really, really bad, and Jesus wanted his followers to get out and run. I hope you see a Jesus here who cares about his followers and calls them to both faith and action, to be smart, to take steps to protect themselves, but also to trust their future to God. You see that these are good words for us, followers of Christ, right now, today? This event, the destruction of the temple, was a pivotal moment in the history of God's people when the place, it was the place around which their entire faith was centered. I love how N.T. Wright explains this. He goes, this is not a prediction of the end of the world, though many in Jerusalem at this time will wish that it was. Had it been the end of the world, what would have been the point of running away? No, it was the end of their world. It was the end of a close of a way of life that had failed by the combination of injustice towards those out inside and revolutionary violence towards those outside to obey God's call to be the light of the world. This thing had failed, and Jesus had knocked over the temple and said, no, when I knocked over the table and said, I'm doing something new. This is not about the end of the world. If this is about the end of the world, why would Jesus tell us to run? Where are you going to go when the world's done? And when the temple falls that Jesus predicts here, it will be the sure sign that he was who he said he was. He was a prophet that predicted its destruction. He was a Messiah that had acted it out. And then it happens. But remember what started this conversation on the hill. Remember Jesus said it's going to be torn down, and his disciples all said, but hey, when? When will it happen? Jesus, in verse 24, begins to quote from the prophets. He pulls in a little bit of Isaiah, a little bit of Daniel, a little bit of Joel. But in those days after that trial, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from the sky, the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. The things that the sun and the moon and the stars are supposed to do, they're not going to do. It's going to be so bad. Then they will see the Son of Humanity coming in the clouds with great power and glory. This narrative is about the end times. If you understand that the end times refer to the time after Jesus' resurrection, which was less than a week away from here. Now, I'm sharing some of my own personal thoughts here. David White, who's one of our great elders here at our church, teaches a class that parallels along with what we're teaching in here. And he and I had some, it's not happening this morning, obviously, but he and I had some great conversations about this passage and about, you know, is this refer to the future time when Jesus comes back? Is this referring just to the temple? I kind of, I'm taking this thought on it. He kind of had a, a thought like this. And so I don't know that I've got it all figured out for sure. I just personally don't think this is about when the earth will be destroyed. I don't think it's about the second coming of Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ is coming back again. But I think when the son of humanity is coming in the clouds here, it's just about Jesus really being the true fulfillment of the purpose of what the temple was supposed to do and couldn't do. 
These are about events that Jesus is talking about, that Mark is writing about now, having seen them come true in his lifetime. And then it all builds to this one last paragraph here. Jesus says, but remember, they, they said, when will this happen? Jesus says, but remember, no one knows about that day or that time. Neither an angel in the sky nor the sun. Who's the sun? Who's the sun? Yeah. It's always a good guess to just say Jesus whenever you. Who do we follow? Yeah, see, you get it. Yeah, good. The son doesn't know, except the father. Beware, be alert, uh, for you do not know when the time is. There's a whole chapter here about the question, when will this happen? And it concludes with Jesus saying, but don't get worked up because no one knows, and even I don't know. I am fascinated by Jesus saying he doesn't know something. Isn't that crazy? He says, I don't know the future. When did Jesus know it? What does he know? When did he know it? I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I don't have the answer to this, but I, I'm just even wondering. So Jesus, when he came to earth, said, I'm going to willingly give up my power. I won't be powerful. I'll have to just live this life. I'll have to eat food. I'll have to be hungry. I'll have to be tired. I'll take a nap in a boat just like everybody else. But he's also, when he leaves heaven, says, I'm also going to give out my divine power to know everything as God, and I'm going to have to kind of be on this earth like everyone else, and I'm going to have to, to, to pray to God. I'm, I'm going to have to get with God in the mornings. I'm going to have to listen to the Holy Spirit to guide me. And I wonder in this moment if Jesus is maybe receiving some kind of vision from the Holy Spirit. A few weeks ago, we talked about when Jesus came over, and for the first time, he's been traveling for three years to finally reach this point of the last week of his life in Jerusalem. And remember, he steps over into the city, uh, over the hill, and he looks down on the city, and everyone's cheering, and he's crying. And people go, why are you crying? And he says, because this city is going to go through so much pain. And I don't know this to be true. But I even wonder in that moment as he came over the city if he was somehow received some kind of vision from the Holy Spirit. Just saying. And he's seeing it happen live and it just hit him emotionally as he realizes that. And he says here, I don't know the time because I'm God, but I'm not leaning into that right now. I just know it's going to happen. So I don't know about that, but I do know this. That Jesus is saying here, leave the timing to God and trust that the new birth is coming. These things are the beginning of birth pains. So let me kind of wrap this up with this. How do these words spoken to people 2,000 years ago about events that would come to pass in their lifetime have anything to do with us in 2020? Well, there are a few words that Jesus says next to them, and then he says something to us. He says this. He says, it's like when a person leaves the house for a journey. And gives each of the slaves authority for their work and commanded the doorkeeper to keep watch. So keep watch. You do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at early morning or at dawn, or he will come suddenly and find you sleeping. Keep watch. He tells these disciples. And then in verse 37, Jesus breaks the fourth wall and he speaks directly to us. And what I say to you guys, I say to all of you, keep watch. What I say to you guys, I say to Pulpit Rock Church in 2020, keep watch. The command is not sit down and work out your prophetic timetable, get all your charts lined up, nail down your dates. The command is keep watch. We get to play a part in the story, but we don't get to steer the ship. 
Now, when I hear these words, keep watch, I believe they are a word of promise and hope. We are now living in the new world. One where Jesus has made a new way to God. No longer is the temple the thin place. Jesus is the thin place. Wherever he is, that's the place where the spiritual world has broken into our physical world. Keep watch is not a call to fear, because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. That's what we have. So we live in this brand new world that has been birthed and is beginning to continuing to change until the return of Christ when he finishes the job. And we're keeping watch for the presence and the work of this man, this prophet, who told us what was going to happen, and then it happened. We keep watch. I've been thinking this week, how do we keep watch? I think we look for opportunities to see where God is at work in the midst of chaos and fear, and then we step into that with him. Coronavirus does not have to be another manifestation of the story of, of separation and selfishness and scapegoating, which we see so often in our culture. Already we're seeing the church stepping into the expression of concern for our neighbors. We are sharing what we have instead of hoarding it for ourselves. We're making creative decisions about how we're going to connect with one another. This is who we get to be. A friend of mine came up with this idea, and he shared it uh, and our family loved the idea so much, we went and did it yesterday. I'm throwing it out to you. He suggested that you write this note. Hi, neighbors. I'm sorry it took a health scare to get us to reach out, but here we are. So if anyone gets sick and needs anything, please don't hesitate to call. Our phone number is blah, blah, blah. If you need groceries or supplies and you're stuck at home, we will happily leave it on your doorstep and see you when you're better. Hopefully it won't happen, of course, but if it does, we're more than happy to help. So my son Gus and I, we printed out like seven of these, and then we looked on our front porch and we said, okay, we know this person, we know this person, but who are the houses that we don't know that we can see from our front porch? And we just walked to them and uh, we uh, stuck these notes in their mailboxes. And then we ran home and we washed our hands six times. <laughs> um, um, just, just to say we're here, and this is the, we're present in this community, you're our neighborhood, and we're keeping watch. We can do this, people. We can do with and for others what we wish they would do with and for us. And this is one way that we remind ourselves that we are participants in a story unfathomably large, in which we are not the protagonists. We are the recipients of something bigger than the combined elements of the universe, the story of the birth of a new world. Keep watch. So I would like to close this morning by having us just sit for a moment with this question. How is Jesus calling you to keep watch in these next few weeks? Let's just sit with that question for a minute. Would you ask him that? What is he saying? Jesus, we're grateful that what you said was recorded for us, remembered, spirit-led, recorded. And your words to them are words to us today. Where are you calling us to keep watch in these next few days and weeks?